the beginning, I was, you know, having a lot of uh, uncertainty about the future. Uh, but I've already come to terms with it. You know, now I'm already prepared for the worst that can happen. Um, but the most important thing is I realize is as long as I keep the people around me uh, healthy and employed, that's the most important thing in this particular juncture. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. On January 11, 2020, Chinese state media reported the first known death from the COVID-19 virus in Wuhan, and the world has not been the same since. Hong Kong, at the base of China, has had a turbulent relationship in the last few years, and the pandemic has exacerbated tensions and changed everyday life too. What impact has the pandemic had on the citizens of Hong Kong and its world-famous restaurant industry? Zhao At Yu is the executive chef of Ho Li Fook in Hong Kong. Zhao At, how are you, mate? Yeah, good. How are you going? Good. Uh, it's been a long time. You cooked in Australia for many years and you've been making a name for yourself up in Hong Kong. What's it like up there at the moment? Uh, well, it's we're just emerging from... Um the third wave of uh, COVID and we're just emerging out of that uh, restrictions are starting to lift and uh, diners are starting to go out to dinners more. So, so that's good. Yeah. But uh, the general, the, the, the general mood is, um, you know, like people are going out to dinners more, um, going out to dine out more. Uh, but there's still certain restrictions of table sizes, no more than six, and restaurants are still sitting at uh, 75% capacity. Um, and also, uh, what I notice is the, um, the habits formed during the lockdowns, uh, that, that is cooking at home, delivery and takeaways, That's, that habit seems to be uh, formed permanently now. So the people are, People, people are still cooking at home more or they're ordering takeout and deliveries uh, and carrying on doing that. So Wow. And, and Hong Kong has a you know, real culture of eating out. There's, there's holes in the wall everywhere and it's really quite affordable. And that's a really big shift for a place like Hong Kong. Well, I think for one, a lot of uh, dining out culture is formed because of our necessity. A lot of people uh, live in tiny apartments that either don't have kitchens or have very small kitchens that are that's basically not suitable for a simple other than a simple meals. So um, and due to the long work hours, many people just don't have time to prepare for meals. So you're working, you know, 10, 12 hour days, uh, that really diminishes the, the time that you spend uh, eating and preparing food. So that, 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 that's sort of the cultural background of why people eat out. You mentioned that you're emerging from a third wave, um, which is extraordinary, really. What, what, what did it feel like, the, the third sort of wave, having experienced a couple before it? Were you nervous about it or did you feel like you knew what was coming? Well, uh, it was the, the, the cases were building up. Uh, and this was due to uh, a hole in the policy that allowed um, dock workers uh, that that were 
the sh- the shipping com- the shipping business had a lot of uh, foreign sailors sort of coming to Hong Kong on the ships. They were sleeping in these uh, cramped dorms. They were able to uh, let out of the ports uh, without quarantine, and this led to uh, sort of unknown source local infections. Um, so that 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 was that caused a tr- tremendous amount of uh, scare in the community because we were seeing a couple hundred cases a day. Now, after that ho- after that hole is plugged, you know, for about two or three months, it's starting to stabilize. And now we're just emerging from uh, um, from the third wave. So things are certainly looking better now, but I suspect that we will have a fourth wave coming shortly, which is when the borders start to open up, they're discussing a travel, a quarantine-free travel bubble for uh, incoming travelers from China and a travel bubble between Singapore. Now, this, I suspect, could be uh, what will happen within the fourth wave. So, uh, you know, what we've been seeing is these uh, COVID infections are cyclical. And until... Until like a permanent solution, uh, whether it's a form of a vaccine or just closing the border, we will continue to see multiple waves. You run one of um, the leading restaurants in Hong Kong. What's what's this year been like for the restaurant? And can you take us back to when you first had that first lockdown and sort of what you've been doing all year to get money coming in through the door? I mean, I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, on a business level, the the lockdown and the down the downturn in the business it really casts like a shadow of uncertainty over the future of the restaurant or the business in general. You know, I'm we're having to constantly evaluate and shift the business to suit the the policies and economical climate climate of the time, and. You know, I'm also just doubting my own cuisine ability sometimes, right? And it's like I put a huge dent on my confidence uh, on, you know, questioning whether if 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 what I'm cooking or, or, or the cuisine itself, maybe, you know, maybe that's the problem. I'm not really sure. So well, let's have a look at um, what you're doing there. Like your, your the translation roughly um, for your restaurant is good fortune for your mouth. Can you, can you tell us about the restaurant and the sort of food that you're cooking there? Um, so it's, you know, it's my take on Chinese cooking. It's mostly Cantonese. Um, but, uh, you know, we have some Sichuan-inspired dishes, Yunnan and Taiwan-inspired dishes. Um, but it's just sort of Chinese cooking uh, through my own lens. Um, so, but it's sort of, it, it's, it's packaged in a, like a fun atmosphere you know that uh it's loud it's dark um it's a fun jovial place it's not meant to be a fine dining restaurant it's it's really casual um and you know you can certainly come for a quick dinner but you can also come to have a party and that's the type of vibe that we're trying to 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 achieve here you're uh, leaning on traditional dishes and as you say um, passing them through your lens as a chef. Could you give us some examples of some dishes and, and how 
um, you've altered them or enhanced them? Well, I mean, uh, well, there's the I have uh, my mom's dumpling. Uh, that is the recipe that she taught me cooking at home when I was a kid. Um, but you know, we hand chop uh, the pork neck because she we didn't have a food processor or a mincer, so then everything is sort of hand chopped and coarse. Um, so that's the that's the sort of, sort of dumpling filling that I grew up with. Um, we also have classic Cantonese barbecue like tasu, roast goose, uh, crispy skin chicken, um, and that's classic. Like that, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, fuck around with. Um, but also, there's some like more unusual dishes that are original of here, based on uh, a technique or or my travels. You know, we have uh, a really popular. Um, Twice cooked short rib with a uh, roasted jalapeno puree and then green shallot kimchi uh, with a soy glaze. Um, so yeah, things like that. You know, there some are. Uh, I just put a new f- fish dish on, which is a grilled hulled fish that's been cured in uh, fermented rice. Um, so it's got a, a bit of acid, a bit of sweetness, and then. On top, with like a fresh salad of uh, dill, rice patty herb, chilies, um, uh, and shallot, and this is sort of like a Yunnan style of grilled fish, uh, and that's I think these vibrant flavors are, 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 are something that I really love. So there, I you know there's some classic dishes, there's some uh, inspirations from different cultures or different parts of China. Um, and that that sort of um, form as a how I um, formulate a menu and a cuisine that I try to imagine. You've cooked all over the globe, but how, how did you get into chefing in the first place? Uh, actually, I started working in restaurants as a dishwasher. Um, I was fifteen years old. Uh, I really liked Nike sneakers, uh, like Jordans. Um, my <laughs> My mom just goes, look, we're, you're only going to get Reeboks, uh, but if you want the expensive sneakers, you're going to have to go out and work uh, and earn the money and buy them with your own savings. So I just go, you know what? If that's what I have to do, you know, that's what I'm going to do. So then that's that's how I started working in a, in a restaurant as a dishwasher. Um, it, it was like a, ha- a hamburger restaurant, like a fast food restaurant. And then, um, you know, I uh, the, one of the cooks just didn't show up, or and the manager just goes, "Look, do you want to cook?" Um, and I just go, "Yeah, okay." Uh, then that's how that's how that's how it all began. Well, you have you have cooked all over the world. What's been some of the main influences on you as a chef? Um, I think definitely uh, working in Australia. Um, you know, I, I was. I was cook. I started cooking in Canada, um, but it wasn't until when I got to Australia where I really opened my eyes about the possibilities and infinities of cuisine. That these boundaries are actually quite fluid. Um, the flavors are quite fluid, and this this Australian 
cooking culture was actually quite new and borrowed a lot of inspiration from Asia. And that was something really eye-opening for me. You worked with uh, Dan Hong down under. Can you tell us what that time was like? It was really cool. You know, uh, we met um, cooking in the kitchen of Tetsuya's. Um, you know, him and I were the only two sort of Asian, one of the few Asian people working in that restaurant, actually. Uh, but we come from very similar backgrounds. You know, he was uh, Aussie-born Vietnamese. Um, I was Taiwanese-born, but grew up mostly in Canada. Uh, but here we are, you know, from uh, an Asian background, but cooking this Japanese, French cooking. Uh, so we immediately clicked. Um, so that we formed like a really strong bond over, uh, you know, cuisine, culture, identity. And then we, we moved on to different things together um, afterwards. You know, he, uh, I, w- I went to work at Mark. He went to work at Bentley. And then later on, we, uh, after he came back from New York, you know, I just gave him a call and asked him what he was doing. He's like, you know, actually, I'm, I'm working with uh, Justin from Maryvale about opening, uh, taking over a Bistro, which is Lotus. And I said, look, you know, whatever you're doing, I want in. So that's that's how we got back to cooking uh, together. And, and, and then from that point onwards, we went on to open uh, Ms. G's and Mr. Wong in Sydney. Well, they were very different venues uh, for Sydney and particularly Ms. G's at, at its time. It kind of really um, shed a new light on sort of Asian cuisine and also sort of uh, fast food as well. What was it like uh, running the kitchen there? It was it was really cool. You know, I think you, at the time it was something sort of new and different for the Sydney dining scene. Um, it was fun. Um, we we had a lot of cooks that were sort of inspired by this new wave or new style of Asian cooking in Sydney. And uh, we had we, we worked with some really talented chefs that have uh, gone on to to do bigger and better things, and that that's that's something really amazing um, to see. You mentioned the restaurants that influenced you in Australia, and you spent quite some time here. Uh, what do you miss about being in Australia? I I working in the restaurant industry in Australia, the I I feel. The strong bond and camaraderie within the business is like nowhere else. Um, the the people in the industry, whether it's suppliers, uh, for front of the house staff, back of the house staff, um, people in other restaurants, uh, journalists, there's a really tight knit community that I feel that is something unique and really special for Australia. Doesn't matter whether if you're in Victoria or New South Wales or Queensland, um, you know, it's a very small community that people have worked with each other in the past or come come across the path. But um, yeah, it's a really supportive industry and really uh, that's something that I really miss. Are there any ingredients uh, that you miss from Australia that you probably don't have access to anymore? I, I think. Uh, 
Australia is some of the most exciting place to cook uh, as a chef because it's a huge continent with so many different climate zones. You know, you have really tropical uh, climates from Queensland. You have sort of cool climate from, uh, you know, South, South Australia, Tasmania, Melbourne, Victoria. Um, and you have, it's surrounded by bodies of ocean, um, some of the cleanest water in the world with amazing seafood. It's completely self-sustainable, like in terms of agriculture, seafood, livestock. Um, the, it, you, can, you can get anything that you want in Australia. And that's something really, truly amazing. What led you to move to, to Hong Kong and, uh, and open the restaurant there? Um, I was cooking in Australia at the time and I was sort of reached like a personal goal that I wanted uh, after Mr. Wong opened. And uh, it really piqued my interest in Chinese cooking. So an opportunity came to, uh, to cook in Hong Kong. Um, and that was really interesting to me because here I am, you know, I'm, I, I could cook in Hong Kong, one of the best places to, to eat Chinese food, um, open a Chinese restaurant here. It's super competitive. This is base. This is, I think, essentially the A class battlefield when it comes to Chinese cooking. Um, so it's a real challenge. And uh, I just wanted to just give it a go. What do you love about Hong Kong as a food city? Um, it's just, it's ultra competitive. Um, and you have to offer something um, in order, something for the community in order to stay alive. Um, the, 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 it has a really vibrant and constantly evolving food scene. Um, and it's very uh, international that in that sense, um, because of being in smack in the middle of Asia, there's a lot of different Chinese cuisines that you can find in Hong Kong, but also at the same time, uh, influenced by the people that come through here, whether it's the travelers, the expats settling here, they're also pushing uh, an international cuisine and influencing uh, the restaurant culture here that competitive edge that Hong Kong has amongst the chefing fraternity, has, has that um, changed you in the years that you've been in Hong Kong as a chef? I mean, it's definitely made me evaluate the importance of uh, survival on a business level, uh, more so than anything, um, because the rent, labor being so high here, um, you in order to survive uh, the P&L sheets, every aspect of the business must be evaluated with scrutiny. There's been a lot of political tension in Hong Kong over the last couple of years. What's that felt like as a citizen living there? Well, you know, within the last year, I've, uh, I've seen tremendous change. Um, just with the, within, within the last year, you see uh, uh, a rapid erosion of uh, the freedom of speech, 
um, civil liberties, media freedom, personal freedom. Um, and that sort of casts a lot of uh, political uncertainties for the people living and working in Hong Kong. Um, you know, the changeover, which is meant to be gradual, but gathering much more momentum uh, at unprecedented speed after the national security law that's being uh, enacted. So there's definitely a lot of uh, attention, attention between society and the government, police and the judicial system. Hong Kong is one of the world's greatest international destinations and people go there, as you say, for you know, top-level Cantonese, but there's all sorts of amazing restaurants there. What sort of impact is uh, closed borders and the lack of tourism having? And do you have concerns moving forward for the industry in that regard? Uh, yes, I mean, they're, they're Hong Kong, the city, that at any given time before COVID would take in up to one to two million travellers through Hong Kong at any given time. Wow. Yes. So at any given time, on a month-to-month basis, there's there could be up to a million travelers in a month that come to visit Hong Kong, whether it's for work, whether it's for work, or whether it's for pleasure. So this is a this this is a livelihood for a lot of industries in Hong Kong, whether it's you're in, a, in the aviation industry, whether if you're in the hotel business, whether in the food and beverage business, whether if you're in the retail business, whether if you're in your convention center business, they, it, 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 it has like a sort of uh, a chain effect on a lot of businesses that surrounds this. So you see a lot of business having to pivot um, just to make do for the time being. You know, hotels having to shift to the staycation packages. Um, Cathay just laid off eight and a half thousand employees. Um, uh, the local restaurant business, um, from the high-priced restaurants, that's actually not so much affected because the richest people of Hong Kong are still going to dine out. It's more or less the same way. It's the middle sector of the economy where uh, the job future and is sort of uncertain. And you see people sort of generally tightening their belts. They're definitely um, either shifting the income to a lower bracket of uh, the restaurant economy or just cooking at home more uh, and writing, writing this out. So... Uh, for whatever sector of the economy, there's definitely um, an easy mood um, on the future of the future growth of the business. Um, so people are a bit wary about their spendings, definitely. Um, so I, what we what I suspect is for big corporation like uh, Cathay, that's probably just a warm-up of uh, job cuts. I suspect within 
the coming year, maybe up until summer, where we'll see more businesses uh, that will go to that will start to downsize in that way. With those circumstances and and that going on, what does that change? What Holy Fook uh, does and offers and may offer in the future? Uh, I mean, look, we're you know, delivery is now a permanent part of the business. Uh, and so is uh, a lot of off-site caterings. Um, when we've started to take more uh, off-site office, office caterings, um, and that's now a permanent part of the business. Now, uh, with this social distancing measure still in place, we're not really sure what, what, what to see. Um, what else we have to do to 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 shift our strategy, um, but um, I'm mentally or already prepared for the worst. Uh, but we're still in it for the fight, you know. Um, and I'm 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 fighting until the very end to to keep this business alive. So. Well, Hong Kong isn't just a restaurant city. There's a thriving and amazing markets and wet markets. Has there been an, any effect of the pandemic during this time on them? I think uh, for some for wet market business, actually they've seen an upward tick because people are cooking more uh, at home um, and then they're going out less. So that's a good thing for, for, for that part of the business. For our restaurant suppliers, uh, because of the closures and restaurants not being as busy anymore, they've started um, to to open up a different channel on the retail business. So uh, opening to retail home delivery uh, packages, so or uh, selling in smaller quantities for home use. So our suppliers have to shift to the the the, the during the, the lockdown measures as well. So that's a good thing for um, I mean whatever business you're in, people are just scrambling uh, to, to 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 shift their business strategy as 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 it happens. As you mentioned, you spent all year pivoting and having concerns over the future of the restaurant and. Uh, you've just climbing out of the third wave at the moment. Um, how have you personally felt this year and dealt with the circumstances? Well, look, you know, uh, in the beginning, I was, you know, having a lot of um, uncertainty about the future. Uh, but I've already come to terms with it. You know, now I'm already prepared for the worst that can happen. Um, but the most important thing is I realize is as long as I keep the people around me, uh, healthy um, and employed. That's the most important thing in this particular juncture. Um, on a personal level, um, you know, as part of my, my, my nuclear family, my wife's family live in Italy. My parents live between Taiwan and Canada. They haven't had a chance to see uh, Otto, the grandson, since the pandemic. And so, you know, we're, we're, we haven't seen our, our, our family for a long time now. It will be up to a year by the, by, by, by the end of this year. So we're not really sure how we're going to be, be able to see them uh, moving forward. 
so that's something that we're going to have to plan for um, going forward in 2021. Um, but the good thing is, you know, I have never slept more in my entire life as a chef. When uh, when the restaurant's closed uh, for 6 p.m. and then we were only deliveries until 9 p.m., I was able to go home and, you know, chat with my wife who was still awake because uh, this never happened and being in bed at like nine o'clock this this is something that is ex- unusual um and another thing is i travel so much for work previously i'm just in a constant state of coming back to hong kong unpacking and then repacking to go to a destination um I have never spent so much time fixed uh, in one place for such a long time. And that's a great thing. You know, my wife and kids have never seen me this much uh, ever. Um, so I could get to spend more time with my family. And that's some, something that's great. You know, I, just going from one international airport lounge to another important international airport lounge, it's just the bane of my existence, but having to, having to stay fixed in one place and be with my family, that's a blessing in disguise. I've also got to, uh, to uh, discover more of Hong Kong, going to, uh, you know, districts or visiting places that I've never been to, um, you know, living Hong Kong for so long and that's something that I, it was nice to do. So, Well, beyond COVID, do you think you'll um, function and operate differently as a chef and business person uh, given this experience? Um, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, we uh, trying to imagine uh, a post-COVID future for restaurant is kind of um, difficult, uh, considering that probably the social distancing measures are probably here to stay permanently until uh, a solution is found. Um, that means reduced capacity and also the, the spending power, how do I maximize um, the per head spend out of the existing space that I have. That's something um, uh, that as a business we have to consider permanently. So, you know, we've, we've started introducing um, uh, dining packages for two people when dining were only uh, limited to two people and uh, trying to trying to get some more beverage spend out of them uh, by offering uh, a beverage on arrival, maybe pushing them to have a second beverage, something like that. You know, just just whatever we can do to sort of uh, make do with the customers that we have in-house and how to get um, more spending out of the, out of the diners that we have. Hong Kong is one of the most special uh, food destinations on the planet as we move forward. What's, what's your hope for the industry and the city? 
I think, you know, we will emerge out of this, I hope, with just a greater appreciation for uh, the, the diners that we have in the city, you know, the, the, the people of Hong Kong. Um, and uh, emerge out of this more united rather than more divided. Uh, Hong Kong is, is a city with the that's restaurants that often owned by large restaurant groups, uh, and that can be sort of uh, cliquey amongst the restaurant groups. But how to uh, how to stay more united um, as a whole? You know, that's better for the industry as a whole. How to come together uh, with some initiatives. And working together to bring diners back to all of our venues, um, that's something that I feel uh, hopeful, hope, hopeful for. Uh, we had a, a campaign called United We Dine in Hong Kong that um, many restaurants come together to offer um, uh, a promotion just to get people back in the restaurants. Um, so yeah, things like that. I, I'm feeling hopeful that the people can work to the industry as a whole can work together more uh, as a body rather than um, more divided. So I know Ho Li Fook is somewhere that everyone needs to go to when they visit Hong Kong, but as someone that lives and breathes in the city and knows the food very well, is there any hidden gems that um, people should look out for when they do get a chance to go back to Hong Kong? Uh, definitely explore more uh, Dai Pai Dongs. Dai Pai Dongs are literal translations called big licensing venues. And they're basically street side stalls that offer food at really affordable prices. Um, but these are not going to last very long. There's only maybe about 30 or so uh, licensed venues. Uh, and these licensed venues are non-transferable, only through direct bloodline. So only the children that take over this can take over the licenses. So if they don't take over the licenses, uh, they will permanently cease to exist. So, um, and a lot of these stall owners are getting quite old. So w when they retire, and when they close, if no one takes over the business, this is it for the business. This is our the city's last bid to sort of clean up the city. But, you know, they forget to realize that this is what's really interesting and make it a vibrant dining option uh, uh, just in a, in, a, in, a, in a myriad of dining options that's available on offer. Um, so, which is a shame, really. So yeah, if you come to Hong Kong next time, try to go to a big licensed venue, uh, Dai Pai Dong's, because you don't know how long that's going to be around for. Well, Jared, it's been uh, quite a few years since we caught up and we're honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. You know, hopefully when this is all over, we can be, I can be back in Australia, you can come back to Hong Kong. We can drink wine and break bread together for another time. It'd be awesome. Thank you so much. 
This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.